0: All right, you may have noticed uh, today's topic. I hope you've noticed the, today's topic by now. It is entitled uh, Miracles and Prophecy in the Modern Church. And to the astute observer, you'll notice there's a question mark at the end of the title, meaning there's, there's an implied question that we're trying to answer. What's, what's the question we're trying to answer today? Packed into this question are multiple questions. Uh, we tried to capture the nature of all these questions in one simple title. Some of these questions we, we've packed in, in, into the title we gave you uh, at your tables there to discuss right before we started uh, uh, this discussion tonight. But other questions might include Do miracles and prophecies still occur in the church today? Or do miracles and prophecies occur to the same extent that we read about in the Bible? Or. Will we ever have a prophet like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or John the Baptist? Will we ever have a prophet like that again? All right? And and for others of you, if the answer to any of these questions is no, your next question might be, why not? Why not? Now, before we dive into this, I want to give you two theological terms, and I promise you I'm not going to to drop a a lot of theological bombs on you today. I promise that, okay? But just these two. And the reason I'm going to do this is because understanding these two terms sets us up for our discussion really well. Because generally speaking, you're going to favor one of these two ideologies. And because generally speaking, uh, the the good news is that these these two theological terms aren't terribly difficult either. All right? And, And from the jump, I want you to answer in your own mind where you think you might lie within these two ideologies, okay? Are you more one or more the other? Here we go. The first one is cessationism. Cessationism, okay? The root word of this this term is the word cease, as in cease to exist. And generally speaking, those who find themselves in this can't believe that, that certain spiritual gifts, that certain spiritual gifts such as prophecy, healing, or even speaking in tongues, has ceased. Meaning God no longer gives those gifts to believers, and he ceased doing that at the end of the apostolic age. Okay? In other words, when the last of the apostles died off, so did gifts like prophecy and healing and speaking in tongues. That, broadly speaking, is the cessationist view. Okay? So the next term I'm going to give you, you can probably guess where this is going, is continuationism. Okay? And quite simply, people who sit within this camp disagree with those who sit in the cessationist camp. People on this side would argue that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in the church today, and and why would we try and put limits on the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit so chooses, he can equip anybody with the power to perform signs of any kind, including prophecy, including healing, speaking in tongues. It centers around the idea... That God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and give anyone any gift, so should he choose. Okay? So again, broadly speaking, those are the two views, cessationism and continuationism. And if you're pressed as to which side you might find yourself, how might you answer that question? Where might you find yourself? Don't say it out loud. Not yet. Not yet. Give me a chance here, okay? you think you're more of a cessationist or more of a continuationist or sometimes called continualist, I've heard it said. Um, Now, you have that in your mind? You you, you think you might fall? Because here's what I'm going to do next. I'm going to tell you which side I favor. I'm going to tell you which side I favor and then I'm going to build a case for you as to how I got there. But first things first, I want to tell you one about my, I want to tell you about one of my biggest pet peeves in culture today. We're a culture that tends to deal in hyperbole. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, whenever we find ourselves faced with a dilemma like this where we're asked to choose sides, we tend to, to defend our side with hyperbole. And I think it's especially the case in this social media environment that that we live in where we only have a, a few number of characters that we can deal with and, and, make our, and give our point and put our point across. And because I only have a, a limited number of characters to do that, I gotta draw sides and I gotta... I gotta Paint a picture in hyperbole. If you're not on my side, then, then you're a you're a racist, you're you're a Nazi, uh, or or any of those extreme terms like that. Because what am I trying to do? I only have a little. I only have I only have a headline. I only have sound bites that I can deal with. So I have to quickly paint a side, and you, just so you know, I, I don't want to be on that side. I want to be on this side. Okay. But you see the the problem with dealing in hyperbole is that 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 no one comes out smarter. No one comes out smarter. No one is being thoughtful and no one is being persuaded either way. Have you ever noticed that? We talk about gridlock and we talk about, have you ever known anyone to say, you know what? That, that Twitter feed really convinced me to go the other way. No, it never happens. It never happens. People dig in their heels, right? So, so what does that have to do with what we're talking about today? I want you to approach the topic that we're dealing with today with an open mind. Okay? With an open mind and I want you to hear me out because it might not be easy what I'm about to tell you and I don't want you to paint me into an extreme corner I want you to like me when I tell you what I am please, please don't think oh he's one of those, I knew it I knew it, okay, here goes I tend to favor the cessationist view who's surprised by that, anybody, okay, I don't, okay. you're surprised by it, right? I tend to favor the cessationist view and, and like I said, I'm going to tell you how I got there uh, wait a minute, Lear. you're, you're going to build a case for the cessationist view and not give equal time to the continualist view. Correct. That's the prerogative of the teacher. <laughs> well, not quite. The reason I'm going to approach it from this standpoint is because I think naturally, I think naturally we tend to favor a continualist view. When we read our Bibles and we read about the miracles, the signs, the wonders and the prophecies, we, we believe in a big God. So why on earth would we believe he still can't do all those things? Already stop doing those things. Okay? And you know what? I tend to agree with you. I tend to agree with you if that's where you're coming from. I lost my dad last year. Many of you know this. He died from a rare form of liver cancer. And he died uh, about six weeks after he was diagnosed. And when he was diagnosed, what do you think I would have given to take him to someone that could put their hands on him and heal him? What do you think I would have given? How do you think I prayed after my dad was diagnosed? I prayed for unequivocal healing. That God would rid the cancer from his body. It pleased the Lord to take him home anyway. Now, does that mean I don't believe that the Lord is in the business of the miraculous anymore? Absolutely not. See, don't paint me as an extremist. Don't paint me into a corner. And I dare say that most of you who sit within this this view aren't. I dare say most of you in this room believe in a God who is living and is active and who does heal people. And believe he uses the means of prayers of his saints to do it as he pleases and as it glorifies him. We want to bet most of you believe that. Yet here I sit in the cessationist camp. What gives? Let's talk about prophecy, signs, and, and miracles in the Bible. Prophecy, signs, and miracles. It may or may not surprise you to know that signs often accompany prophecy in the scriptures. Prophecy and miracles tend to go hand in hand. So first, let's try and identify the function of the prophets in the Bible. What is the job as identified by the scriptures? What is the job as identified by the scriptures? What is the job of a prophet? The job of a prophet is to speak God's truth to others. The job of the prophet is to speak God's truth to others. Now, that's a pretty broad definition. And maybe that helps some of the questions that you have on your table. Are there prophets today? You might hear that definition and think and say, see, aha, there are prophets today, right? We can have a modern day prophet. Every, every week our pastors and Bible teachers speak God's truth to others. That's prophecy, okay, granted. Granted, but let's not get ahead of ourselves yet, okay? We're, we're, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. all the way back to, to, to the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis. And there, in Genesis, there was no such thing as a Bible teacher yet. Not, not in the way that we think of it. No such thing as a pastor. Not in the way that we think of it now. The first named prophet in the Bible, the first named prophet who was given the name, the title prophet before his name was Abraham. Okay? And if we had a little more time, we could dig into specifically what, uh, what, what made Abraham a prophet. So instead, I want to focus on one of the more obvious prophets. What made Moses a prophet? How did he get that job? Did he apply for it? Did he apply for that job? No. No, he didn't. He was called into that office. This is Exodus 3, and here's verse 4 and following. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, he called him out of the bush. Moses. Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face For he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord tells Moses. He 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 sends him into, he says, You're going to go into Pharaoh's court, and you're going to go into Pharaoh's court with a specific message, my message. Okay? Moses, you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me. And this is where, 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 where Moses famously replies back: Who are you? What is your name? If if people ask me, who is it that that gave you this message? Who is it that that told you to come here? What what do I tell them? Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. You see, the function of the prophet, the office of the prophet is to be the one who speaks on behalf of the Lord. They don't speak in such a way where they say, it's my opinion that, or, or it's my judgment that we should, no. No, the, the job and function of the prophet in no uncertain terms is to be the one who says, thus saith the Lord. That's the job of the prophet. This is what God says. The prophet speaks on behalf of God, okay? The prophet speaks on behalf of God. Have you ever noticed how much credit we, we place on a piece of paper? For example, you go to high school for four years and then you go to college for four years and maybe some of you then go to graduate school for another two to three years. So that's like a 10 to 11 years of schooling and what do you have to show for it by the time you're done? You have three pieces of paper, three diplomas, right? And, and the same thing at the doctor's office. You, th- Does your doctor do this? I've noticed uh, my doctor has a copy of their medical doctorate diploma hanging on the wall of the examination room. That's, al- <laughs> that's always been funny to me. You're at a place where you're in the examination room I feel like you've made the commitment already. Right? You've made the commitment to allow the doctor to do whatever you're gonna do, but, th- but then there's this last bit of reassurance that you need. This 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 person this person knows what they're doing. See? See? Here's a piece of paper that proves it. It makes you wonder: has anyone seen that, that diploma hanging from the room and then changed their mind said, Oh, you went there? I'm out of here. <laughs> Forget it. Right? The diploma, amongst all the other credentials, right? They have on the wall, those listen to this, those validate or testify to the fact that the doctor has the necessary training and credentials to practice medicine on you. Those diplomas serve as the sign that the pointer to their qualifications the paper doesn't empower him or her they point to the authority that's been granted on him to to practice medicine on you. That's that's really important to understand. This is really important to understand before we proceed any further on this topic. The function of the prophet is to speak on behalf of God. And if we have more time, we can go through all the prophets of the Old Testament and see how this is the case. Every prophet of the Old Testament, it was incumbent upon them to validate their calling. In a sense, to prove that they spoke on behalf of the Lord. What is the proof positive That the prophet had the necessary credentials to speak on behalf of the Lord. How did they validate their office? What was the primary means of validating the prophet's office? Do you know? Miracles. Signs. When when Moses went into Pharaoh's court and said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Not you, Pharaoh. What validated the fact that Moses was speaking on behalf of the Lord? It's a great question because Moses had the very same question. He asked the very same question. What if they don't believe me, Lord? What do I do? What if they don't believe me? And he answered this with Exodus 4, 2 and following. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And at this he put his hand inside the cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Okay? Again, what's the purpose of the sign? What's the purpose of the sign? What was the purpose of the miracles? To validate the calling of Moses. To prove that he was who he said he was and that he spoke on behalf of God. Now, we could, go, we could go through the same exercise with Elijah in, in 1 Kings 17 and 18. King Ahab was in power. And he was more evil than any other kings that had come before him, we're, we're told. So the Lord raised up a prophet. Again, someone who would speak on behalf of the Lord. This is uh, in Elijah 17. Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead. This is a sign. This is a miracle. Of what purpose did this miracle serve to the widow? First Kings 17, 23, 24. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. It was the sign. The miracle that validated Elijah is someone who has the the word of the Lord in his mouth. They go hand in hand. Now, what I'm laboring to tell you here is that the office of the prophet served a very specific purpose, to speak the word of God, speak the word of God. And the primary way that that prophet's calling, the primary way that that prophet's calling was validated was by way of a sign or a miracle. And what you'll notice as you work your way through the Old Testament, is that in terms terms of signs and wonders, there were only a couple of of preciously brief periods of time where there was a a proliferation of miracles. During the times of Moses, which extended into Joshua's time, and then during the ministry of Elijah, which, which then extended into the ministry of Elisha. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, any other miracles we read about are fairly isolated, We tend to think that about the Old Testament being that the Old Testament is is packed full of miracles all throughout the 39 books of the Old Testament. But really, it was only those two periods of time for about a 100 years each. And if that's the case, it might make you wonder what was so special about those periods of time in the Bible. These were extraordinary people with an extraordinary message. When When you think about Moses, he might be the... He might be the one person that you think about who epitomizes the law. And when you think about Elijah, he might be the one person that we say might epitomize the prophets. To usher in the era of the law of God. It's accompanied by amazing signs and wonders. And then to usher in the era of the prophets, it's accompanied by amazing signs and wonders. There would be no other period in biblical history where there's this volume of miracles comparable to that of the eras of Moses and Elijah. Until until the time of Jesus. During the time of Jesus, this would then be be the third period in history where we see this proliferation of miracles. Miracles. Now, I don't know how many of you play the game of chess. Anyone play the game of chess in here? It's a few of you, okay? Uh, I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at the game of chess. I know I know how to play it, uh, but I'm not, I'm not any good at it. In fact, it wasn't so long ago that my younger son started playing a little chess, and he had been, been playing for like a week, and then he was able to beat me consistently. And it wasn't that difficult for him. It was like, you know, ten moves, done. You know, gotcha, right? The thing that's difficult about chess is that you have to think several steps ahead, right? You can't just fly by the seat of your pants, which is probably why I'm not good at it. You you can't just play reactionary. The move you're making now has to serve a greater strategy and hopefully pay off in three, four, five, six moves from now, right? And this is kind of the mindset you have to think about when you think about the Old Testament. Nothing in the Old Testament was reactionary on God's part. It all served a greater purpose of setting up this this grand redemptive strategy. It's like God moving his chess pieces around the board. Miraculous periods in history that came before Christ didn't serve as isolated events in redemptive history. They gave us a pattern. I never get tired of saying this, and hopefully you've signed up for a four group, because this is exactly what we're studying in the four group uh, um, study, is that... Everything that we read in the Old Testament, everything that we read, everything that we read in the Old Testament, the arrival points us to the arrival, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ministry of Christ. All of history revolves around the person of Christ. So when we see the function of the prophets in the Old Testament and the signs that accompanied their ministry, we have to realize their primary purpose was to point us to Christ. That was their primary purpose to give us a picture of Christ. So it should come as no surprise that with the advent of Christ came another, another period in redemptive history where, where there was a proliferation of miracles. And just as we saw in the Old Testament, we see according to God's plan, the pattern is set. We see how this works. Moses and all his signs and wonders pointed us to the, great and to, to the, uh, to the, the greater Moses. Elijah and all his signs and wonders pointed us to the greater Elijah. Now we can see and observe this pattern in the Old Testament, can we see it in Christ too? Can we see the same thing in Christ? Let's, let's look at the book of Luke. Luke, as he's telling us about the gospel of Christ, he begins this account uh, in, in, in Luke by telling us about John the Baptist, then the genealogy and birth of Jesus, and then starting in chapter four, okay, he gives us details surrounding the beginning, the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And in that account, at the onset of his ministry, Luke gives us details like this, where Jesus is in the temple, and he opens up the book of Isaiah, and he reads this. He reads what Isaiah wrote about the servant of the Lord, who would be the Messiah. So this is Luke telling us about Jesus, who is reading from Isaiah. Luke 4.18 and following, he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, and recovering sight to the blind and to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, this is what Jesus is reading from Isaiah. And then he says, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying here? What's his claim? In no uncertain terms, he's making the audacious claim that he is the Christ. He is the Lord's anointed, is what he's saying. He's making the ultimate, thus saith the Lord remark. There is no claim higher than this. And then how does Christ validate this claim? How does Christ validate this claim? In the same chapter of Luke, same chapter, chapter 4. Just a little further down, I think Luke was being very intentional here. Right after Jesus speaks on behalf of God, Luke then gives us record of Christ healing a man with an unclean demon. It's as if Luke is telling us, here's his claim, here's his validation. He is who he says he is. Look what he can do. So so this is something you have to understand when you read about miracles and and the signs of, of Jesus. I've heard it said before that Jesus never performed any naked displays of power. In other words, Jesus never performed a simple, a single miracle that was just for the sake of showing off his power. Never did that. Never did that. Every miracle he ever performed served a purpose. Inevitably, inevitably, every miracle served to show his people, the disciples, the world around him, that he was who he says he was. He turned water into wine, not simply because it was an inconvenience to be out of wine at a wedding. John tells us that he used ceremonial jars. Jesus used ceremonial jars, the kind used for purifying oneself before going into worship. He used those jars, as if to say the the water in those jars won't get you clean. Only the blood of the lamb will make you clean. And then he poured out gallons and gallons of wine, a cleansing that would be effective, abundant, and free. That's why he turned water into wine. To tell us about his forthcoming sacrifice that would allow us to partake in the ultimate wedding feast. He didn't heal the blind and restore the sick just to make a a few people have a better outlook on life. He healed the blind and the lame because it spoke of what he was about to do on a massive scale with the children of God. He would open our eyes spiritually. He would take away the the biggest malady we've ever known, the malady of sin and death. He didn't raise Lazarus because he felt bad for being late. He was purposely late. He was purposely late and allowed Lazarus to die so that God would be glorified. So that people would believe, all the while pointing to the greater resurrection but not just his own resurrection, yours and mine. Yours and mine, that, that though we wrestle with sin and death now, he was here to turn back the clock of sin and death and make all things new. You, you see, every miracle, every sign pointed to a greater purpose. Nothing was done as a naked display of power. Nothing was done simply to fix the inconvenience. And, and you can do this with every one of Jesus' miracles. They all pointed to who he was and what he was there to do to save his people from their sin. And, and, the fact that, and the fact that people got back their health, their sight, their life, was a glorious byproduct. But they were still just pointers to what he was doing on a giant redemptive scale. Do you know how we know this? Because every single one of those people he healed eventually died. They got sick again, including Lazarus. They died. Because what he was there doing on earth wasn't specifically about the moment. Though again, it was a glorious byproduct. He did these things to point to what he was doing to defeat sin and death, a foretaste. What I'm doing here right now is a foreshadowing of what what he was about to do at his crucifixion. So the era of the law and Moses ushered in with signs and wonders. The era of of the prophets and Elijah ushered in with signs and wonders. And yes, there was a spillover effect. They extended a little beyond their eras. On the Mount of Transfiguration, who was up there? Remember who was up there on the Mount of Transfiguration? It was Moses. Who else was there? Elijah? Jesus? The disciples? Again, Moses, maybe we call him the representative of the law. It was Elijah, again, who, who we might call the representative of the prophets. And who else? A glorified Jesus, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. As if to say, this is everything that the law and the prophets, all their signs, all their wonders ever pointed to. It begins and ends with Jesus. And guess what? There was a spillover effect that accompanied all the signs and wonders that came with Jesus. Jesus. The apostles. My wife and I have uh, have two sons, uh, both in their teens now, fifteen and fourteen, and, and they've reached the, the age where it seems they are eating us out of house and home. They eat everything, everything, and and particularly my older son, he he eats around the clock. I don't know how he does it. He eats around the clock, and uh, and it's almost a futile at this point. But we still try and keep them on a regular schedule. So save save room for dinner, right? I heard that so many times growing up, and now I'm repeating it to my own kids. I remember thinking, why do I have to save anything for dinner? You know, if I ruin my appetite now, there's going to be another one coming along right after this, right? <laughs> why do I have to save anything for, for later? So, so we still try, you know, just we're about to eat dinner, so, you know, cool it a little bit, okay? So sometimes I see him walking around with a snack before dinner and what are you doing? Why are you doing it? We're about to eat dinner in less than an hour. Put that away, all right? He's a good kid, and he'll put the bag of chips or whatever it is away. But every now and then, I'll ask him to put the food away, and he'll look at me and respond with, Mom said I could. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, I'm powerless to stop him. Now, what is happening in this moment? Is he defying me? Is he defying me? No. He's not disobeying me. Why not? Under whose authority is he operating? He's operating under the authority of his mom. Okay, If he received permission to eat that bag of chips from his mom, and I, don't, and I don't like the fact that he's eating before dinner, who am I at odds with? I'm at odds with his mom because he's operating under the authority of his mom. Now, this is something you have to understand when we speak about the role of the apostle. Now, some of you probably know this. Maybe some of you don't. But the word apostle is not synonymous with the word disciple. Sometimes we feel like we can use this interchangeably, but they have very different meanings. The word disciple means to be a learner. Okay, so the 12 disciples, they were learners. They sat at the feet of the rabbi. They followed him around and he would, he would teach them. The rabbi being Jesus, of course. All right, but the apostle, the apostle. In the New Testament, the disciples had beyond this, Jesus empowered some of his followers to be disciples. Apostles to be ones who are called out. For example, when when he was sending them out to minister in his name, when he was empowering these apostles to be sent out in his name, he reads this, uh, we read this in in Mark 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority, gave them authority. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So by whose authority... Are they over the unclean spirits? Is it by their own authority? No, it's by the authority of Christ. Okay? Or Luke ten sixteen, when he sent the disciples out, which is, which is what the word apostle means, one who sent out, right? He says this to them. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Got it all wrapped up in one right there. Okay? This is what's distinct about the apostle. And, and, and this wasn't unique to the Bible either. This was common in antiquity. A king would personally appoint an apostle. In person, he would appoint an apostle in person to act on his behalf. And again, what makes an apostle special is that he doesn't speak on his own behalf, much like the prophet in the Old Testament. They spoke on the one on behalf of the one who personally appointed them. And when the apostle spoke, the hearer was to make no distinction between the apostle and the one who gave him the authority to speak. No distinction. If the apostle spoke, it was to be received as if the king were standing there speaking himself. But again, it's important to note this authority had to be granted by the king, or in the case of Jesus, granted by Jesus in person, personally. That's what an apostle was. Then in the first chapter of Acts, We see this being played out. We see a very specific definition of what it takes to be an apostle of Christ. There there were the characteristics you had to have in, in, uh, in able to qualify as an apostle. Those three qualifications were they had to be directly called by Jesus. They had to be a witness to his entire ministry. And they had to be a witness to his resurrection. Three qualifications that they laid out there. This is what makes an apostle so special. One that could, could, could speak prophetically on behalf of Jesus the King. So as you make your way through the New Testament, and yes, you certainly can observe Jesus performing miracles, but we also observe the apostles performing miracles as well. How are they able to perform miracles? Because they were the ones personally granted the authority by Christ to do so. And just like in the Old Testament, the apostles would perform these miracles not out of convenience, not because they wanted to show off their magic powers, The miracles served to validate their office as an apostle. See that? When you read about the apostles healing people in the book of Acts, it's because they were directly and immediately called by Christ to do so, to act on his behalf and continue the ministry he began when he was in their presence in the flesh. And beyond this, it wasn't just that the apostles had the ability to act on behalf of Jesus and and, and, uh, and, and heal on his, his behalf, they've been granted the authority to speak on his behalf. And this is the basis of the entire New Testament. The New Testament is written by those whose apostolic authority, those who, who speak prophetically, the words of Jesus, the words of God Almighty, because they were personally granted the power to do so by Jesus himself. And so let me ask you this. Can I come in here and say... I'm an apostle. I'm the apostle Eric. Can I do that? Which of these qualifications eliminates me from being an apostle? All of them. All of them, right? I don't qualify in any of these. So can I speak prophetically the same way an apostle could speak? No, I cannot. No, I can't. The only way, the only way I can speak prophetically is if I'm speaking the words of Jesus or if I'm speaking the words of those whom he gave authority to speak on his behalf. So if I'm reading to you the Bible, if I'm, if I'm exposing the Bible to you, yes, in that sense, I'm speaking prophetically to you, but they're not my words, you see. They're the words of, of Jesus, the words of, of God Almighty, or they're the words of, of those he granted the authority to speak on his behalf, his apostle or his prophet. Okay, so, so you see why from this standpoint, we have to say the authority he gave the apostles has ceased to be given to anyone else outside of the apostolic age. And, and then given what we know about signs and the function of miracles, you see why we say people with gifts, for example, of healing has ceased to be. There is no reason to validate the office of the apostle because there are no longer any more apostles. Okay. Now, having said all that, does that mean that nothing miraculous ever happens? Of course the miraculous still happens. I was speaking with uh, someone today who was telling me that when she was in grade school, she began choking on a piece of candy uh, right in the classroom, right in front of her teacher. And uh, her teacher didn't realize what was happening. The teacher thought she was just goofing off. You know, making gestures and, and a lot of ruckus. It just so happened, though, that one of the, it just so happened that one of the parents of another child in another classroom was walking by on their way to pick up their child, and as she was walking by the open door, it just so happened that she caught a quick glimpse of the girl. And, and it just so happened that she had a clear view of her face and noted the distress. And it just so happened that this parent who was walking by was also a nurse. So it just so happened that this person was professionally trained to be able to recognize the situation, jump into action, and save her life. I don't know about you. I don't believe in it just so happened. But do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between something miraculous that happens that, that glorifies God and something miraculous that, some, that someone else is doing or, or claiming to do? If you see someone doing a miracle, for example, let's say they're performing a healing, you should ask yourself, is this sign validating someone? Is this sign serving to show the credentials of someone who has the authority to speak on behalf of God? And I'm speaking to new revelation here. To me, if I see someone performing miracles, I say to myself, "What, what is God validating that he hasn't already validated completely? in the person of Jesus Christ. What new words of revelation would someone be telling me that hasn't been said completely in the word of God through the pen of the apostles and prophets? Ephesians 6, 19 to 21 tells us, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles the apostles. And prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in other words there's only one foundation only one foundation the apostles and prophets built it on behalf of Jesus Christ there's nothing new from a foundational standpoint that we don't already have now one final thought and I suspect there's some of you that might believe yeah okay I agree that the Bible addresses much of what we face in life, but, but not everything. What if, what if I'm trying to decide, do I take job A or job B? Do I move my family across the country? Or do I leave them here? Do I give my, my money to charity A or charity B? And what if I'm really torn about this decision? Is it too much to ask God to give me a sign? Can you give me a sign? Can I still be a a cessationist and ask God for an occasional sign? I was about 17 years old, and I was a senior in high school. I was an active member in our church. In fact, all of my friends... All of my friends that I had were from church. I found my place of belonging at church. I, I never quite fit in at school. In fact, I was, I was a bit of an outcast. But at church, those were my people. Those were my people. It, it was at church where I found my friends. And in fact, to this day, I'm, I'm friends with, with so many of the people that I knew from church back then. And, and I can't say the same for the people that I actually went to high school with. So it was my senior year. And it just so happened that there was this this girl who was was a somewhat regular attender, and yes, this this girl had caught my eye. Now, as I said before, I was a bit of an outcast, so so I didn't have the highest levels of of confidence when it came to dealing with, with members of the opposite sex. So the idea of just going up to someone and asking for their phone number or something like that was absolutely mortifying. I figured I had to play the slow game I had to get to know her, and in the process of getting to know her, she would soon discover what a charming person I was. And then, and only then, once I, <laughs> once I had a pretty good idea that she wouldn't point at me at, and laugh, then I could do something crazy like ask for her phone number, okay? To make a long story short, I really like this girl a lot, but guess what? Suddenly, without warning or notice, she and her family just stopped going to our church. People do that, you know. I don't know if you know this, but it's like they just disappeared, and, of course, I was heartbroken. Weeks, weeks, if not months, went by. And there was no sign of her at all but giving up. But, but I couldn't just give up yet. So, yes, I prayed, and I prayed hard. God, give me a sign one way or another. Is she gone forever? You know, when you're, when, when you're 16 and 17 years old, these things are huge. You think that this, this could be the one, you know. 16 years old, I think I got it all figured out by now. So I, so I tried to paint God in a corner. I tried to paint God in a corner with this request. I said, God, even though it's been months, I need you to tell me. I need you to tell me by this Sunday. So if she shows up to church this Sunday, then I'll know we have a future together. And if she doesn't show up this Sunday, then I know I should just forget about it forever. I should just forget about it. And that was the deal I made with God. And you know, I feel like those are pretty good terms. Her her family hadn't been around in months, and and so if she suddenly shows up, that would be a pretty good sign, don't you think? Yeah. Well, Sunday came around, and guess what? Reached the end of the day on Sunday and nothing. Until. It was after the evening service, which is something we used to do back then. We used to go to the evening service. Morning and evening, right? It was a parent-teacher... Our parent and students meeting about the upcoming summer camp miraculously. She showed up because she was going to attend summer camp. First time in months she'd been around. There it is. That's my sign. That's all I needed. I got my sign from God. And I would like to tell you the girl that I am speaking about is my wife, Tracy, whom I've been married to for 19 years. I would like to tell you that, but it's not true. (laughs) So what happened? What happened? Well, she was a no-show for summer camp, and I never heard from her again. That's what happened. Which really, at the time, I remember thinking and asking God, what was that all about? I mean, really, she had to show up one last time on the very day that I gave you the ultimatum? On the very last, on the very day I asked for a sign, that's when you decide to send her to church, and then she's gone forever. Now, as as silly as that story might be, I bring it up for one reason, and that is surrounding the notion of asking God for a sign. Again, I believe God still works miraculously in the lives of believers, but I think this taught me an important lesson. I like to think that God, in his own tender way, was telling me, yeah, I hear you. But that's not how this works. Learic, are you saying that God told you by way of new revelation? No, 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 no. I arrive at that answer by way of the word of God. That the word of God is is useful for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That no, the word doesn't tell me my wife's name, but it did tell me that they that wait upon the Lord shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And beyond the word of God, yes, I want you to understand this too, that God gives us the body of Christ. God gives us one another who are able to speak wisdom regarding specific events in our life. But it's not their wisdom they speak. If you're speaking into someone's life prophetically, you better be speaking the word of God. We speak the word of God that's found in the wisdom of God that's found in God's word, which all of us tend to forget. All of us do forget. And yes, then He gives us prayer. He does speak to us in prayer. I'm inclined to believe that, no, not in an audible tone. I, I've been a Christian for almost my whole life 40 something years. I, I, I can say I've never heard God speak in an audible tone to me. Is that because something's wrong with me? No. I don't think so. I, I think he's given me his word. And I think he, he's given me his, 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 his means of, of prayer. And I can pray to him. And he in, inclines my heart and he reminds my heart. He stirs my heart for the things that are in his word. And the people around me, the body of Christ around me, they speak into my life the, the word of God too. That's what he's given me. So while I would love... To be on the receiving end of a a miraculous sign or word or prophecy that speaks directly to my immediate situation in crystal clear tones. And instead, he says what he says to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. You see that? It's not from a position of strength, it's from weakness, from, from a deficiency. That's when his grace is sufficient for you. And so, I don't know if that means that it changes the way you pray. I don't know if that means, well, maybe I should stop looking for signs and wonders. I don't know, maybe it doesn't change your mind at all. That's the last question on your card that I want you to consider. Is hearing any of this change the way you think about signs and miracles and and prophecies? And all I would do, all I would tell you to leave is, is wherever you land, Make sure that it's rooted firmly in the Word of God. Make sure it's rooted firmly in the words of the prophets and the apostles. Because those are the ones that God said, they don't speak my words. Again, this is this is a miracle to me. God could use any means that he wanted to implant his truth into us. We could have been born and wake up one day, we got it. But instead he used people. He used people to write down the words of God and put it on paper, and these people would then take it to the world. But we're taking the word of God to the world, not our own judgment, not our own thoughts, not our own instincts, but his word. Those are the only ones that, that won't fail. Everything else, everything else fails. That takes us to 720. So that gives us about 10 minutes. Uh, I'll give you, you can see if you have any questions or any thoughts, any insight. And uh, I reserve the right to say, I don't know. Uh, because, again, this is a difficult topic. Um, And then I'll maybe give you a few minutes to just talk amongst each other and discuss now, what did you learn today? Does this change the way you think about signs, prophecies, and miracles? Does it change your your perspective on it? Tell me what you think. Any any comments or, or questions? Concerns? Accusations? Yes, sir. Prime.
1: Restoring, and so it was restoring in an in it already but not yet. no no and I agree with that. They, they, they speak a message. Right. And that's, that's why I, I was very
0: careful to say primarily, primarily validating but also I also said a foretaste, a foreshadowing which I think is exactly right, exactly what you're saying. They serve to show us of, of, what, of what gets to come and that is all things new. That's, that's where it all ends. You know it all points to that. Great, great insight, great question. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. And so, again, yeah, very important. I, I teach a class here I'm in this very room every Sunday, and one of the things that I, I, I emphasize over and over again is, is context. Context is really important. Do you understand what was the context of the First Corinthians? The context of First Corinthians is a church that had gone bananas. Okay, out of control, and so Paul is, is now trying to, to reset, push the reset button. Okay, so. Here, here are these gifts, and, and, and here's the order in which you use them, and here's how you use them, okay? Now, you also have to understand, in that context, it was a specific age. It's still the apostolic age, so there was still a lot going on. And again, that's not to say, during that apostolic age, that there wasn't Scripture to lean on. There was Scripture to lean on. But the Apostle Peter talked about the difficulty of, of Scripture, and he even referenced the letters of Paul, and how difficult, and he called them Scriptures, how difficult they were to ingest, but again you still have to realize this is still the, that apostolic age work, where, where the Lord is moving around his chess pieces, right, and and bringing things uh, in, into such a way, into such an order, that results in a, a comprehensive canon of Scripture and the end of the apostolic age. So I think those are the two things you have to consider within the book of 1 Corinthians. The context of, number one, that it's still formative. Number two, it's also corrective. Uh, but then ultimately, three, uh, it's it still that apostolic age, okay, so there were gifts of tongues, there were gifts of prophecy. And the thing that, and again, I know I, for probably a lot of people, the the, the gift of, of tongues is the one I think that people tend to be sensitive about, because it's like, I feel like that should be a, a, a gift for today, right? But even Paul, what Paul is saying in those letters is, I prefer one intelligible word over a hundred unintelligible words. Like he's saying he's placing his preference. I would rather have an intelligible word than all these gifts of tongues. He's placing a preference on the intelligent word. And again, so I, I think what that points to is the fact that it's moving, it's moving in a certain direction. And that certain direction is towards the the, the the formative of, of the canon of scripture, which ended at the end of the apostolic age. Does that make sense a little bit?
1: There's spiritual gifting today.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And that's that's about, the whole idea of the cessationist view that certain gifts, that's, yes, not all of them, certain gifts ended at the end of that apostolic age. So you have to consider immediate context and then what it means to, what what we can apply from that context. Always have to consider who the original audience was and, and why he was saying those things. very important in understanding those, those scriptures I would say. I have So...
1: Uh Post-resurrection, modern church. Uh Jesus leaves, but he sends the Holy Spirit. Right. So, how does the Holy Spirit act in the modern church in this
0: context? Okay. Key passage to to read and understand is his high priestly prayer at the end of John. Okay. And again, you have to ask yourself the same questions. Uh, What's the context? What does it mean for the original audience? What does it mean for the current audience? Us. Okay? There's two things going on there in this high priestly prayer. He's saying, it's better that I go so that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, may come. Okay? Who is he talking to in that moment? The apostles. Okay? So there's something specific that he's saying to the apostles. And he's saying, to the apostles, the Holy Spirit's going to come because you're about to face some things that you're not prepared to face. And I'm going to equip you to do the very things that we read about the apostles doing in the book of Acts, which are signs, wonders, miracles, all kinds of things. But at the same time, in that same high priestly prayer, he prays not only for the apostles, but then he specifies those that come after you. That's you and me. OK, so so yes, that high priestly prayer that he's saying, the, the, the comforter is coming it's for the apostles but it's for us too but you also have to consider context Okay? does that mean that everything that he's telling the apostles right and then and there automatically applies to us well that's where this whole discussion comes from and that's where I would say I, I think at the end of that because again what was the function of the apostles to speak on behalf of God he gave them special gifting equipment specially to carry out that work until after the apostolic age does that make sense? And again, if, if some of this is too much or too much, I'm happy to, to, to talk afterwards too and then say, didn't understand that. Rewind, slow down a little bit. I'm happy, always happy to talk through these things. and I love doing this. Um, anyone else?
1: That's, yeah. What do you make of like miracles empowered by the enemy? Like the after Aaron does is throw down the staff. The sorcerers are throwing their staff. Mm-hmm. And then you know, the state, their state beats the sorcerer's state. Yeah. Those types, sorts of wonders
0: and miracles and wonders and view also cease to be present after the apostolic Age? Uh, that's a good question. And I and I'm gonna say I don't know. And because I would say we wrestle not with flesh against flesh and blood, but, but against the powers of principalities the and, and uh, there are all kinds of things that, that contain power that that uh, that fight against us. And so in that respect, that's why I say uh, I, I, I the cessationist view doesn't hold. That everything miraculous has stopped. There are some things out there that are spiritual that we cannot explain. But for the purposes of, of the church, who we are as the church, what do we give credit to? What do we give authority to? And again, the reason, the reason there are spiritual things out there that we would want to say and question anything that we see miraculous, and that we would say that maybe we should lean on the cessation of view is because there are things out there that we can't explain. And we don't want someone coming to us new with a new revelation, something that we can't explain, and then giving credit to that. That's why we say it's, it ends with the apostles, and they're the authority that they have. Because you may encounter something that, I can't explain what that was. Does that mean I give it authority? No. The authority ends with the apostles. And again, that's what. That's why that that, that cessation If you leans on that, the authority of the apostles themselves. Yeah? So... I agree with
1: you on the cessationist and and I think that scripture you could include that in with prophecy and mm-hmm. miracles that did not continue, continue beyond the apostolic age. It's so talking, you know, my question is about flesh and blood. It's a technical question. No, no. So did Paul, in your definition of a, an apostle, did Paul Get in there on the
0: technicality. I knew someone was going to ask that. it every time right?
1: it's a great question because when you look at those
0: three qualifications of an apostle, how many of those qualifications did Paul fulfill? Really, one. Okay, called directly by Christ. Was he a witness of Christ's ministry from beginning to end? No, he was not. So, what does that mean? Do you witness his resurrection; he was not there, but he was called directly by Christ. So, how did he get in? Why do we give? Well, why do we give Paul authority where I can't have authority? Right? Oh, because he had one no. more than that. More than that. What was it that gave Paul authority? It's in Acts chapter nine. Does anyone know what gave Paul authority? Yes. What? It was the other apostles. It was the authority about whose calling there was no question. He went to the other apostles and the other apostles validated validated his office. And if you if you're curious, about three weeks ago I preached a sermon at Music Girl on this very topic, it's fantastic.
1: <laughs>
0: and you can listen to it, but it has that very deals with that very thing. It's that very thing. And, then, and and what what I marvel about that is and that may make you a little bit uncomfortable, that Paul's qualifications are a little shaky. But you have to understand that the Apostle Paul, the Lord, what he was doing in this, built the the perfect Apostle that was perfectly credentialed and perfectly qualified to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And again, I always question that, why did he do it this way? Why didn't he use Peter or James? Because Paul, and I'll just summarize it really quickly, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, but he was also a Roman of Romans, which means that he could go throughout the entire known world, the entire known world to preach the gospel. That's why he was the gospel of the Gentiles. And he can go freely anywhere. As a matter of fact, there's even another uh, passage in, in, in Acts where where he was arrested. And he wasn't supposed to be arrested without a trial because he was a Roman citizen, right? And that that's what that's what again made Paul the perfect apostle, he was the perfect one. So the more I read that and the more I understand that, I'm like, Lord, you never cease to amaze me. You never cease to amaze me. This is a, this is amazing. And so that's again, because I always felt. Growing up, I felt uncomfortable with that. The idea that Paul didn't have the credentials that the other apostles did. Which, what's what making him different than Joseph Smith, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, or, or uh, Charles, no, Joseph Smith is Mormon, a, is a Charles Russell is that same. Is but they came in, they said, I have authority because I had a vision from God. Is Paul on that same ground? No. Because he was validated by the apostles when we had no question about their authority. And no one else, Charles Russell, can't say that. Joseph Smith can't say that. No other cult leader can say that. Only Paul can say, I was validated by the apostles themselves. And Galatians said the same thing. Extend me the right hand of fellowship. That's why I'm going question Paul. Yeah? Uh, Acts chapter 1. There were, what was the context of Acts chapter 1? Yeah. They said, well, Judas is gone. Uh, so how do we replace Judas as one of the 12? Here are the things that we need uh, to have listed for replacing. And, and again, this is what I love about the Lord here and how he works things out. They, they came up with another guy to replace Judas. But it really, it turned out to be Paul in a sense. You know, it wasn't the one they picked. They, they, again, there were more than, it's you you to know there were more than 12 apostles. You know, he, he there was a passage in Mark where he, he commissioned 72. And for everyone that was at the Great Commission when he said, you know, go therefore, I, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the those people were considered apostles. So they're, you know, conceivably, you know, more than just the, the 12. Um, and so, again, yeah, but those, thanks for question Acts chapter one. 7.33, I don't want you to be late to pick up your kiddos uh, if you have to do that. Um, let me close this in prayer. And again, I'll be here for a little bit longer, so if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you uh, uh, right afterwards. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, once again, I, I thank you for uh, who you are the God of the universe who spun this whole thing into orbit and yet you are so intimately concerned with, with each one of us personally you wrote us a love letter and uh, and it's ours to read as often and as much as we want over and over and over again let us never to uh, let us never find an end to the, the wonder that is your, your word thank you Father for, for what you've given us thank you for your son, thank you for your Holy Spirit and we thank you you've, you've not ever left us alone. And help us remember that as we leave this place, uh, once again we thank you, especially for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you.